Hey, it's Karen Hunter from the Karen Hunter Show on Sirius XM Urban View. Here's a highlight from today's show. Let me welcome to the show. Uh, she is, of course, an anti-poverty activist. She's the CEO of FPWA. She's also the author of Considerate Pure Joy, which chronicles her journey from death to life, where she is living every bit of it. Um, let me welcome mm-hmm. Jennifer Jones Austin, our family member. Hi. Hi. Good to be with you. Good, good to, to see, see you. Good to, good be, to be seen. Seeing. Yes, all of that. Were you listening to our conversation? Because I know you. I feel- literally just jumped up off, okay. off of another show. So all right. yeah, clue me in. All right. So Pete and I were having this conversation. I, I will never accept the role of minority in society. And I think we need to start changing the language around, you know, minority, white, all of this, like examine everything, which starts with us. So I don't ever refer to black folk as minority. I don't care what we're the global majority period, because there's a global thing happening. And I don't see myself as just one person living in New Jersey. I see myself as a global citizen. And mm-hmm. with a, with thousands of years of history carried forward. So I, I don't start my, my history with 400 years of enslavement either. So there's that. Um, Pete thinks mm-hmm. that there's some value in being in, in identifying minorities. You work, you're anti-poverty, you're working for people. He's saying resources don't get to people if they're not identified. Do you... Mm-hmm. So, so I do think that uh, people that, that needs... Needs should be clear and people who need support um, should receive the support that that is necessary for them to leave, you know, live, live stable lives. And that's largely because we live in a society that has made it so that certain people will always be dependent uh, uh, for assist on assistance if we don't change some underlying structures. But the use of the word minority is not the way to identify these persons, persons or persons like myself or others. Because the we all have come to appreciate we've now done enough of child development, uh, you know, studies and psychology, uh, enough of like how children learn and how we inform, uh, you know, impressions of self to know that minority is a label. We know that minority means less than and majority needs means more than. And so when you label a pe- people of color minority, what you are doing is you're not just saying well, you represent, you know, fewer numbers of people. No, you're putting in minds a mindset that you are less than, that you're not as good as. And so we need to rid ourselves of that malapel. You know, it, it's fascinating. The, the, um, as the, quote, minority becomes the major- majority, they're not going to switch it up. They're not going to switch it up because right now, white Americans are not the majority. Right. And in, in, in a few years, I should say, well, when I say white, white Americans are not the majority. What I mean by that is that when you start to look at people of color and aggregate in the next few years, they will not be the majority. And if and they're only right now, in some instances, the majority still because they've taken away the distinction of Hispanic as being a race. Yes. Yes. I noticed that. And put it, you know, right. so now you're white Hispanic or you're black Hispanic. And that's intended to put more people in the white grouping so you can maintain the majority. But at bottom line, I go against any use of the term minority as, a, as an identity because the, the intention is not just for counting purposes for income supports or assistance to government for tuition or whatever, but it's to create a mindset, to reinforce a mindset that you are less than. 
uh, Pete. Hello. Hi. Hi. That was fascinating to listen to. I love Jennifer. <laughs> Jones. So, so, uh, you still my, don't my, agree, though. <laughs> I, 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 no, I agree. I think we're talking past each other a little bit. I think when you talk about it, and I think when, when Jennifer is talking about the detriment of the use of the word minority, they're talking about the kind of the psychological effect that the word has when someone thinks of themselves as a minority. And I think there's a lot of research uh, on that 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 is proven, that is borne out with any any number of different uses of language and obviously policy. And minimizing of any opportunities and discrimination throughout America and, and human history. Mm -hmm. However, what I would my question to her would be about how policy is made. So Karen mentioned you work in anti-poverty circles and, and, and I think that's awesome. And, and I have worked with all kinds of anti-poverty organizations all around the country, locally, nationally, and the way that they look at policy, my understanding is using the word minority in reference to minority populations to uh, to create policy around those populations because that's how it's effectively done. It which is different than calling someone a minority. So in terms of and if it's not and if it's a word that should not be used with policymaking, what word should we use to identify the root problems so that we can create policy and legal uh, regulatory solutions for those folks? So certain policies have used the word minority, you know, especially when we think about, um, let's say, affirmative action as a way of creating opportunity. What I'm saying to you is that you can figure out what a different labeling is. Uh, it does not have to be minority. And since we've come to understand what the negative associations are, uh, we often see on the, on the news, oh, this person was a minority and it casts a negative light upon that person. People involved in certain activities, the minorities, it casts a very negative and detrimental light on those persons. And so what I'm suggesting is that, you know, call people what they are, identify them as black Americans that have experienced discrimination. And therefore, uh, you know, if you wanna say, you know, affirmative action should apply, or you wanna talk about reparations, call them black Americans, call them who they are by their legitimate identities. But we know, we know how language works and how it is used to reinforce negative, you know, negative associations, negative inferences. We, we know that. And so let's move away from that. And as this nation becomes, quote, more majority of minority, what a perfect time to do it. No better time than now. Yeah, and I asked I asked Pete to now to denounce his whiteness on these airwaves. Uh, he said he would be more effective uh, operating as a white person, but I think no, 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 that's not what I said. Okay. I have denounced my whiteness and whiteness for as long as I knew that that was a, a a possibility. From Ibram Kendi to Tim Wise to Heather McGee to I can go back to the '60s to James Baldwin. I've been denouncing my whiteness in the concept of race since I learned about it as a young man. I all the other thing that is true, and I don't think you disagree with me. I don't think anybody really does, is that I am most effective combating racism with other white people. Oh, yeah, uh, I do agree with that. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, so, gather, so gather them up. 
while understanding that, that race is a construct and deconstructing whiteness. And I just mentioned this book by Baynard Woods, who, which is so good about this uh, one issue and can, him confronting his whiteness. If you want to know what whiteness is and what it looks like to confront it, read his new book. But the, the idea is I also have to use what I do believe is good language, privilege, white privilege to combat and deconstruct racism in America. And I think I've been effective at it, as a matter of fact. I think you, mm-hmm. you're you're one of one of the the um, yeah I mean it's obvious you're here I like you uh, Pete Dominic is here uh, I have to make a correction not a correction I have to update you uh, Timothy Loman who was sworn in uh, last week I believe as a police officer the man that killed gunned down Tamir Rice in like three seconds in Cleveland uh, has resigned from his position. Uh, from a Pennsylvania police department uh, f- following the outrage from him being hired in the first place. But he got to resign, which is, I think, a dignified thing. It's not like he got fired, but y'all swore him in. And the only reason why he's no longer going to be there is because people were like, what in the hell? This man killed a 12-year-old. How does he get to be a police officer anywhere in this world when he could not uh, have the judgment to see that Tamir Rice was 12? I don't trust him with a gun and a badge, but apparently now he's resigning but I feel like the harm was already done because you hired him. I don't and just, get it. Just the way uh, you're, I, I totally agree, just real quick, to illustrate white privilege. Mm-hmm. When I was growing up and we had, I grew up in the 80s, and the guns that we played with, and we had a ton of toy guns. They looked like real guns. They had, had wood stocks and black barrels. And when I was growing up, we were playing with those guns. And you know what cops did in our neighborhood? They pulled over and told us we were holding them wrong and how to hold them better. That's the difference. Like that's the, the I always talked about that with Tamir Rice's death. Mm-hmm. He was holding a gun that didn't look real. He was a young boy. The complaint was loud and clear that this dispatcher explained it. There were so many mistakes made. It was a straight up execution. But that doesn't happen in white neighborhoods. And it's my job to recognize that and call it out. Yes. And, and, and we have to remember that, um, you know, part of the uh, justice and policing reform legislation that was being advanced uh, at the congressional level was intended to get at the very issue that we're experiencing or experienced last week with Tim Lomond, where uh, a database, what, was, what has been desired is a database that would uh, essentially hold the information concerning uh, police officers and violations uh, actions, you know, that they've taken that were egregious, disciplinary matters, putting that in the record to prevent them from moving from municipality to municipality to municipality and securing one job after the next. But we've seen that legislation um, has gone nowhere. And it seems like such a simple fix, right? Why wouldn't you want mm-hmm. there to be a database unless you don't want accountability for people doing things. Speaking of accountability, uh, Derek Chauvin has been uh, sentenced again. Uh, We know Derek Chauvin, the man who um, put his knee on the neck of George Floyd for nine minutes and 29, 26 seconds. Um, Now the federal, uh, you know, he was found convicted in Minnesota, uh, sentenced to 22.5 years. Uh, he got a sentence in Minnesota. Um, now he has been given 252 months uh, additionally. 
and the sentence is going to be run concurrently, uh, 21 years in a federal prison. De- Jennifer, what is it that means together? So he serves a 22.5 in Minnesota, and then he goes to the federal prison and serves uh, the other 21 years? If it's concurrent, it means that it's running at the same time. Oh, so they're just folding it in. So what's the point exactly. of doing this? What's the point of doing this? Um, you will, in part, what you want to do is you want to make sure that he uh, has been sentenced at both at the state and at the federal level, such that if he were to appeal uh, in one jurisdiction, the other one holds. And so, you know, he'd have to get, he'd have, if he were to appeal and win, I should say, at the state level, he's still got a federal uh, uh, sentence against him. And so that's one of the reasons that you do it. But the other thing is you want to make sure that uh, you know, he doesn't, again, keep in mind also, even if, like, say, he were to have to continue to serve both, you want to make sure he doesn't want to get out on, um, you know, good behavior in one in five, 10 years, because very often at the state level, especially, you can get out early for good behavior. And so a federal, not as easy. Uh, you could maybe he could get hit, be pardoned. I doubt that's ever going to happen. And we pray it doesn't or some type of commutation of a sentence, but you want it for one and not for the other. So you just, it's kind of like a reinforcement, the way to bind him, uh, you know, like he's got to serve some significant time. Let me just also go back very quickly on the accountability thing with the police. You know, we often talk about the NRA as being one of the strongest associations in this, in our world, in our society. And that's why, you know, guns are so prevalent and we're just seeing, you know, less and less uh, restrictions. The police unions are very powerful as well. And I shall never forget, this is firsthand information. You may recall, Karen, that a little better than a year ago, I served on a police reform task force here in New York City looking at police reform. And one of the things that we were uh, focusing on was what to do, what type of penalties should be exacted upon police officers when they engage in the most egregious, most heinous acts concerning, uh, you know, civilians. And there was this back and forth about whether or not if they did things like they violated the no chokehold ban, whether or not they should be fired immediately. Mm-hmm. One of the, and one of the things that we repeatedly heard and just blew me away was we can't do that because police officers have families. And if they lose, like if they're fired or if they lose their pensions for egregious behavior, their families will suffer. And it was this constant question of, well, what about the, the police officer who does the chokehold, kills somebody, and now that family member is gone. And that family member will never earn anything to take care of their family. You're involved in so many things quietly, which is what I love about you. Like you move like mist, getting st- stuff done behind the scenes in this this op-ed that you wrote today, I think. Um, this is what strategy looks like, y'all. All right, so uh, <laughs> tell tell us about the um, this this piece that you wrote, which basically is putting applying pressure at the same time a pat on yeah. the back. Talk about it. So um, you know, here in New York City, more than half children under the age of five live in families that can't afford childcare, and what we know is that childcare serves two uh, critical functions. Uh, one, it, it allows parents to get back to work sooner, to bring money and resources into the house for their children. But the other thing that we know and uh, is, is critically important is that childcare is the first phase of early childhood learning and socialization. 
And uh, we've learned more and more in recent years that uh, cognitive uh, brain functioning and ability and development is, you know, is greatest in those first early years. And so putting children in childcare settings uh, helps them to develop uh, uh, the, the brain muscle to then be able to, in later life, develop stronger executive functioning. Uh, and again, the socialization, very, very key. And so Mayor Adams has uh, essentially moved to expand childcare by increasing uh, the eligibility uh, for better than 41,000 children. And we're trying to take the numbers up to nearing 100,000. And he's put money in place to do it. Uh, we receive state funding and federal funding for childcare. And with the economic stimulus money, there's money to expand it to younger age children. In the main, it's been there for three and four and five-year-olds, but now we'll soon to be able to uh, begin to bring it down to two-year-olds and some as early as infancy. There'll be slots for children uh, beginning just, you know, uh, like after several weeks of birth. Critically important, and again, important for moms and for dads who aren't earning enough to make ends meet uh, and provide for childcare. I mean, childcare in New York City, on average, so better than $20,000. What was that? Okay. Yes, I agree. Um, I, I thought Pete was con uh, jumping in. I accidentally stepped. I accidentally stepped on on that with my computer. I'm sorry, okay. but I, no. I I just wanted to say what 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 she just said is what I've heard for years. Obviously, she's the expert. And in this investment, what I would just quickly ask is how does our system compare with uh, systems in, in Europe and Scandinavia, because it, the outcomes are so well proven, and yet we refuse to invest in them, is my understanding. Uh, we are so far behind. But we've used, just like we've used food, just like we've used housing, just like we've used education in general, we've made it uh, a system that feeds and supports and advances opportunity for those who have and uh, we, we've, we've continually deprived those who don't. And so if you look in other places, uh, if you look in, let's just take Italy as an example. Let's take Switzerland, let's take Sweden. Uh, early childhood is like a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a right of your way. It's like, it's, it's, it's what is done. Just as is um, uh, paid family leave. I mean, we are the, like literally like a first world nation and we do not have true paid uh, paternity and maternity leave for parents to go home and take care of their children. In some places in Europe, they're home for three to six months, fully paid, but it's all by design. I mean, that's, uh, Karen knows, this is what it always comes down to. It's all by design, it's structural. And this is why in this op-ed, I speak about the childcare plan and the expansion as uh, the first steps towards equity and racial justice here in New York City, because in the main, the majority of people who are unable to, to financially provide for quality childcare for their children are low-income black and brown people. So when you expand this, you begin to even the playing field, make it more equitable for parents to go to work and for children to have the first stages of learning that helps them to develop in such ways that they can really engage and compete in the later years of life. As you're talking, we, we start off the show asking a question I was reading Tom Hartman's um, Twitter thread about the potential for uh, the Supreme Court and then the local uh, legislatures to overturn a democratically elected president in 2024. 
the 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 die is cast, the, the table is set. Mm. And Pete thinks that people will storm the streets if that were to happen, it'd be a riot. And I don't think that that will happen. I think people will put on pussy hats like they did before and shake their fists and then go on back to their privilege. I am I'm I'm stunned that we live in a world where like their abortion laws. I was listening to Clay Kane and he's been railing against this ten, about this ten year old girl who's forced to have a uh, right. who was raped obviously and is forced to have a child in this country. And you think no one cares? And he's like, you don't care about that child. She's a child. You don't care about her. You only care about the fetus. But you don't care about the child when the child is born. And there's a disconnect about like and these people think they're good Christians. You know, as a person raised by a very powerful pastor, Jennifer Jones Austin, it's like there's something really twisted in this world where people don't really care, but they thump that Bible as if it is the reason why, you know, so I'm just, I am not optimistic as I'm listening to both of you, both of you very well-meaning people, good people, you love your, your human beings, you want to see the best, but I feel like there's something missing and we are not going to get the kind of, candidates or the you know it's like we we keep falling down i don't know what the solution is but i just i know something has to be done differently and i'm not well, quite let's sure just what keep it is. in mind that you know i'm not 100 percent convinced that republicans were on board with overturning roe v wade uh but rather you know it's all about votes and uh they saw an opportunity with to do the what, evangelical though? christians to get you know, to to just get votes and get power to serve their purposes. And so, you know, this, this, I don't know if they really wanted to go this far. I mean, remember, like, I mean, they weren't pushing this 20, 30 years ago, but it was a way to get back in. The other thing that I'll say is, you know, you and I could spend hours talking about this. This country was founded with a Christian interpretation of the Bible that said that enslaved persons were not human so as to justify the enslavement of Africans. It was the it was the slave master, you know, who was whipping the slaves left and right, the enslaved persons left and right, Monday through Saturday, who then was standing up in the church on Sunday morning at the pulpit, talking about how God, you know, you know, God, God will bless and God will save and God will restore, right? And so this has just been the mode of operation. You people in power using religion to serve their purposes. It makes no sense in the world that, that the evangelical Christian can say that they cherish right to life. And this is why we had to overturn Roe v. Wade while at the same time expand gun rights. Liberally and, and, and broadly determine the Second Amendment as giving everybody the right to, you know, to, 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 to arm themselves when in fact that's not what it was about. It was about, you know, establishing militia to defend against, you know, like, you know, like the army yeah. because we did not have an army. So you, ne- you, you broadly determine the Second Amendment there, but you narrowly determine it when it comes to right to privacy and you use Christianity to do it. Uh, but That's all I, it is. I have a quick question for Jennifer, but the only thing I'd add to that is if somebody I saw somebody tweet this today. Do you think the founding fathers themselves would have abided by laws made by men 200 years before them of course they wouldn't <laughs> ridiculous but jennifer my my question to like what karen's you know legitimate concerning complaint is that i share my answer to that has been through my own experience in the last few months and and working on local campaigns is to is to get be a part of a local 
campaign. That's what you can do to change it. And as a, a woman who has, you know, been a part of all kinds of campaigns your entire life, looks like your whole family has. What do you what do you think of, of that being a solution for people to actually take action in their own town council, board of education and so on? I think it's critically important. Uh, I think that people need to understand that so much, uh, th there's a lot that happens at the federal level, but so much of it is also informed at the city and the state level. We would not be in the situation that we are right now with Roe v. Wade if uh, certain actions weren't you know, being undertaken and manipulated, if you will, uh, at the local and, and, the, and the state levels. The same thing with voting rights. And so it's critically important to your point, Pete, to get engaged uh, and stay engaged. And, and what's gonna happen right now with uh, Roe v. Wade is that it is going to have to be some local uh, and state actions that are taken where people resist these changes and getting cases back before the Supreme Court in the next 10 to 15 to 20 years. That's the only way we're going to get this back. And the other way is by moving for federal legislation. So you do have to vote. And the other main issue is that there's no local journalism. And I'll tell you what, the progressives, the, the, the racists, the anti-CRT people in my town, they look out for each other. They talk. They've been in this town forever. They know what they are trying to protect. And more importantly, they know what they're trying to tear down. The progressives are generally people who came here recently. Like I'm talking about the suburbs of New York City. They are of uh, many different races. We don't talk. We don't organize, but we have to because there's we don't know what the problems are because there's no local journalism. We have to also try to be aware of what is happening. And that's hard for people mm -hmm. to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think Karen's heard me say before, my father used to say to me all the time, gain knowledge and gain power. Uh, and, 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 and then I uh, once when talking with the general counsel for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that was headed uh, by Bishop Desmond Tutu, mm. when I began doing the racial justice work here in New York City, you know, to put uh, racial equity ballot measures on the ballot come November, he said to me, the general counsel said, Jennifer, begin with this and end with this and, and stay constant with throughout. Keep in mind that the people who created these systems designed them in such a way that they would forever and ever perennially perpetually hold on to power. Mm -hmm. And if you operate with that mindset that that's how they constructed these, this, the society in which we live, then you're better advantage. If you believe that you're going to make one change and now you know, we're all living in utopia and it's a, a beautiful world for everybody, you are wrong, dead wrong. And I think that's where the civil rights leaders and those who came behind them with affirmative action and all the people who got to benefit from it in corporate America and the like, that's where they got it wrong. They took their eyes off the prize thinking we'd arrive somewhere and did not understand. No, no, no. The people who created these systems, these inequitable, unjust systems, have in mind keeping them inequitable and unjust. And if you think that one win or one little battle means you won the war, you are sadly mistaken. You just got to stay the course. You got to stay. You got to stay in the game as evidenced by Roe v. Wade being overturned after 50 years. You know, yeah. rights won can be lost is what I'm hearing you're saying. And it's it's such right. an important it's such an important message. But I mean, for people to get involved locally, do it. it also the greatest feeling in the world. It certainly has been for me. It's a good feeling. Um, there are those moments, though, when you find yourself having to deal with elected officials sure. uh, who 
come into play and they want to change the progress. They want to change up on the progress that's been made. Mm. And uh, that can be frustrating, but you just got to stay in it. Uh, Speaking of that, Mississippi uh, closed its last abortion clinic, officially shut down (laughs) yesterday, a day before the trigger ban against all abortion procedures poised to take effect in the state of Mississippi, uh, following, of course, the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. New Mexico governor signed an executive order protecting medical providers in the state from discipline due to an out-of-state resident receiving abortion services in New Mexico. Uh, and they, New Mexico will not entertain extradition. So the abortion clinics are moving there. They're moving to New Mexico. Uh, so abortions are of course restricted in Texas, Oklahoma, Arizona, Utah, which all border New Mexico. So, uh, abortion clinics are now finding a safe haven in New Mexico, but we shouldn't even have to do that. And now a 10 year old has to give birth in this country. It's so crazy. Um, and we've got to be strategic. I'm just going to leave it there. You just got, have to be strategic because the way that this is going to be challenged is through the courts. And so just as, uh, you know, the, the, the right wingers were strategic in making, you know, deciding which were the cases that would ultimately make their way up to the Supreme Court. Going to be very thought, have to be very thoughtful about what cases are going to challenge this new law and, and the way that it's enforced at state levels. Uh, challenge it to get it to the Supreme Court to have it heard the right way. I was I was part of a, a group. There was a group attempting to bring together some Americans to have a conversation. And for several months, we would meet weekly, biweekly to talk about what we could do to engage Americans. And I, I, I joined because I wanted to see what would happen, even though inherently I knew that there's more than a conversation that needs to be had. We need to plan. There needs to be a hundred year plan. There needs to be a 50 year plan for what outcomes good, reasonable people want to see. And then we need to start putting those things into place, including candidates, including candidates Mm -hmm. in in all parties. Like this has to be an all out assault and you can't really just hunker down with Democrats and Republicans because what, Folk in power recognizes that can change from generation to generation. Mm-hmm. A Republican in the mm-hmm. 1800s, totally different than a Republican in the 2000s. And uh, same with Democrats. And why isn't there a third party? Well, we got a plan for that as well. A fourth party or fifth party. There should be multiple parties. There should not be one party running the table one way or the other. And those are only binary choices and we can't keep complaining about it. And we need to get rid of the electoral college and we need to get, I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot of things we need to do filibuster, all of that. And maybe, you know, um, but that requires planning. You just can't talk about it. And I think we talk too damn much. And that's somebody that talks every day. Um, can we take some calls? Eight six six eight zero one eight two five five. Pete Dominic is here. Jennifer Jones, Austin. We tweeted out her op-ed. You guys can read it yourselves. Uh, let me take Chase in Seattle. Thank you for calling. Welcome. Hey, Karen Hunter. I love your show. Uh, first time caller. Uh, love everything Yay! you do. Uh, but well, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Getting back to uh, just distinguishing black versus minority. I think it's very, very important, especially we've been working in the corporate HR setting for the last 10 years. Uh, when black people get grouped in the minority sector or quote unquote as a minority, we get left out. And a prime example is actually my company now. Um, there's only two black people out of 200, so we represent one percent of the company. But if you look at the whole company, uh, minority, we group in the Asians, et cetera, there's about 40 uh, percent. So the company can easily look at the numbers and say 
yeah, the minority number here is strong. We have about 40% minority. But if we distinguish black, for example, that's only 2%. So I just want to kind of clarify that or just give that example because I think it really does hurt, especially in the corporate and job hiring sector. Um, when we're not getting hired, it's because they're using minority not to hire black people specifically. Mm-hmm. And that's all I have to add, but thank all you. Right. Well, thank you, Chase, and welcome to the call and family. Do not be a stranger. It's a great point. And you guys have convinced me, for the record. No, no, no. I mean, listen, we, we're we in community where I believe every everybody in this room right now, we're on the same page. We want to see more not rights for more mustache. people. It's huh? not about your mustache, uh, which is, you know, it's not as bad. Lindsay likes it, by the way, but Lindsay's Jennifer, such a contrarian. She hasn't said anything, and she doesn't even know me, and she, yeah, this is the first yeah. time she's met me. She doesn't yeah, know that yeah. this was not a choice, and I feel the right. need to tell her. Okay. Oh. Bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> It's your point. I'm sorry to step on you. Thank you, Smith. Uh, Appreciate it. Um, And I forgot what I was saying. You were saying we're a community in the college. Thank you. No, but, but, you know, you come from a place where you've lived your whole life being you. And so you're jumping into allyship with some insight into something, but you're not, it's not a lived experience, right? And it's not a, uh, epigenetic or generational lived experience. You are seeing something that is not right. You want it to be right. You're going to jump in, roll up your sleeves, get involved locally. You're going to fight when you see racism, you're going to be out there and do those things. But those of us who live it, it's a lot more nuanced and there's a lot more. So I like, if we could just start with language and how we identify one another and ourselves now it becomes codified and then it becomes codified even with young people and, you know, there's so many things that need to get done. But let's go to Russ in Kansas. But at least we're talking. Hey, Russ. Hello. Hey, what's going on, Karen? Love the show. Thank you. Uh, I, I had a question about reparations. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, I, I, I really I, I find the, the, the notion of reparations really interesting in that, you know, I mean, uh, you know how how that is all to be done mm-hmm. uh, to to make things more equitable. So but let me let me ask you before you uh, do you believe that reparations is owed to the descendants of those who were enslaved in this country for four hundred years? Um, uh, yeah, to to some extent, I, I just no. Think so what extent? Be... I mean, because if we can't agree that reparations, which is the repair and the and the the, the you know the monetary and others, because I, I don't know what it should look like. But, you know, if we, we got to first admit, like, AA, you got to first admit there's a problem. America has a problem. And until Americans admit that there's a problem, we can't go any further. So let, before we get into mm-hmm. all of the things that you aren't sure about, Russ, are reparations owed to people who are enslaved in this country who came from Africa? Yes, to some extent, yes. No, but no, no, it's either yes or no, because now to some extent you've given, it's like the butt clause in the 13th Amendment. You know, we've abolished slavery, but for incarceration. And then we're going to set forth all of these laws to make sure we incarcerate people like loitering. Oh, you don't have a job. You just were enslaved. Now you don't have a job. We could reincarcerate you, uh, which is slavery. Here's a chain gang. Matter of fact, we have cotton fields that you need to pick. So slavery came back through a butt clause in the 13th Amendment. So when you give caveats, Russ, you are basically saying no. So what, to what extent are reparations old? Well, and, and well, that that was my question. To no, 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 you, no, no, no. You have to answer that, right? Because if you believe it's it's old to an extent, what's that extent? Well, 
I, I was saying without a check, without actual cash money. You're running away from the question. I know it's uncomfortable. I know it's uncomfortable. I don't know you. I don't know if you listen to the show frequently. But I think, you know, America has to get over this before she can be great. If you think America's great, this is the problem. This is a problem here. The disparity, the age-old disparity, disparity, but also how we see this, this issue. To what extent do you think reparations is owed? I think that there needs to be an effort made to make things right with all of the people that have been wronged in this country. Like who? Native Americans. Okay, yes, black, okay. But there, there was, was wait, hold on, hold on. There was efforts made to repair Native America. It was piss poor, in my opinion. I don't think enough was done for our indigenous people. But there were, were there, I mean, Jennifer, was, was there any, there was some effort made to repair yeah, some, some effort, but remember, we we created these tribal communities. We uh, here's your land, and then we deprived them of all the critical resources to thrive on those lands. Okay, um, you know, as I listen, are you are you are you getting more into the how? Do you believe? But it's you're questioning the how it's done. Uh, no, ma'am. I was simply questioning uh, what would what would it look like for the vast majority of African-Americans to say we're good on reparations if it did not include a check. If you were thinking about subsidized mortgages, if you were thinking about free college, if you were thinking about all these other all things, absent a check, because I think, I, think I think that a check to people is the most problematic because one, I, you know, how black are you, whether you are from, uh, mm-hmm. uh, how long has your family been here? I imagine it would be a lot of white people news. getting checks under that construct, a lot. But, you know, America gives a check to Israel every year, a big check, right? Um, and I don't know if America participated in the Holocaust. Maybe America did. I think America had some backdoor dealings for sure. I know that uh, there was a, a Bush family, what was it, the ga- IBM and uh, the, mm-hmm. the gas company that, you know, that they used to gas people. I think America had a hand. I mean, I, we, America gave Hitler the Nuremberg laws with our Jim Crow laws. So I, maybe America is complicit. So we are we are owing America, when I say we, uh, a check to the mm-hmm. descendants of those uh, folk that suffered in the Holocaust, but we give a check to make sure that that nation's good. Every is there year. is there a construct that that smart policy people agree on that reparations would be most beneficial, and how how that? We can't even of- get to a study, right? So until right. Uh, what was it, John Conyers, forty years ago, put forth that yeah. was it, HR fifty or HR forty right. to to I mean, study what you it. See- yeah, what you see now uh, happening now is uh, certain cities, municipalities, states are studying the issue on their own and then coming up with ways of doing it. So as an example, in Virginia, uh, the state university has now determined that if you can establish that you are a descendant of an enslaved person, then you receive uh, tuition assistance to attend a state university. In Evanston, Illinois, uh, you know, resources, if you can uh, show that you were an enslaved, a descendant of an enslaved person in that community, then you can receive uh, support for housing, for home purchasing and the like. So it's it, people, there are places that are looking into it and trying to figure it out, yep. but there is no. I, I want to say this because I think it's important. The system of enslavement impacted 
everybody and anybody that came here Mm -hmm. after slavery was over because after that was that period of Jim Crow that my parents suffered under my grandmother and mother couldn't vote in the state of Georgia, you know, which means that they have representation and taxation, no representation and taxation. Being black in this country, which is why Pete to, to the point, like to me, I can't make the distinction because they didn't ask Amadou Diallo whether he was black American from Africa. They didn't ask Patrick Dorsman where he was from when they pumped him with those bullets or the brother that was just pumped with 60 bullets. It didn't matter to them whether or not he was indigenous, whether he was from Africa, whether he was black five generations in America. The blackness and the whiteness, that's the problem. And reparations becomes, to me, a focal point to have a conversation about America's original sin. But it's a conversation America has not, Americans have not been willing to have. And the reason why, Russ, I'm not directly answering your question is because now that becomes the thing that you hold on to. Well, I'm not giving up a check. I'm not, well, who gets to have a check? But you can't even answer whether it's deserved whether reparations are deserved, Russ. And that's the fundamental problem that across the board, Americans cannot say something happened here that was fundamentally wrong, that continued far after an Emancipation Proclamation, and it has divided this country in a way that might be irreparable, Russ. But it's almost, do, wor- do you- it's almost, it's almost worse than that if you look at, I was just down in Shepherdstown, West Virginia, there's a street. Robert E. Lee Drive. So if you look at the monument still to the Confederacy, it's so much worse than even what you're saying, because we first have to recognize that those those people are not heroes. They were they were the enemy. They're traitors. They're terrorists. And then you need to have a reconciliation of some sort with a with symbolic monument, you know, the way Germany has with the Holocaust and, and, and concentration camps. You can't be having weddings at a at a plantation at a death camp. Which yeah, is so, what it was. Yeah. so so you have to have a, you know, a symbol, you have to have a recognition. And then I'm not saying it has to happen in this order. I'm saying the fact that we're I'm trying to paint where we are at, where the window is. We still have Confederate statues and we are arguing about them. Yes. Russ. You know, it's still it's so multifaceted. Right. So it's the it's it's the check. It's the monuments. It's the the question when you look at why Dylan Roof. And uh, this young man, Cremo, why they shoot, they, they engage in these mass shootings and they get taken in uh, with, without incident. But you have, you know, a, you know, a, a Jalen Walker who gets shot up six, you know, like it looks like he may have been shot 60 times. The bias that attends, the trauma, reparations in the form of a check alone are not going to address that. Right. Right. I mean, so like it's 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 like, can you it, essentially to Karen, the question that, that you're positing, you're making me think about it this way is how does America provide reparations for persisting racism mm. that right. continually disadvantages, marginalizes, oppresses and keeps black Americans and other persons of African descent or persons of color? from living fully as white as white citizens. All I'm saying is if you don't admit you have a problem and if the polling is is accurate, that a a huge, frighteningly large percentage of white people feel they are the ones being discriminated against, which was the case in my town in our board of education fight. They (laughs) are the ones. So we don't even recognize what Jennifer is so accurately saying. We actually think the, the dynamic, the paradigm is different, that we are the victims, that we are, are, are 
the ones who are losing or being discriminated against. And, and that is the truth of a huge percentage of white America. And that I think is the most frightening fact of it all. I agree. That critical race theory is replacement theory. Yes. Somehow, if you force me to acknowledge that something happened, then I am now responsible and I have to do something because that's what really what it is. If you know something is true, now you have to do something about yes. it. Yes. Play that out for us. Uh, see, I've never heard that. And that's that's fascinating. CRT is replacement theory. How do they hear it? Right. They hear critical race theory as replacement theory. They they that that you construct this narrative about um, how Black Americans right. uh, have structured, like you know, by structural design, been disadvantaged to then create the argument and the justification for uh, replacement, you know, putting Blacks in positions and not whites or taking from whites and giving to Blacks. So this this thinking that critical race theory is it's code for replacement. It's a way. The less erudite explanation of what you just said is you're replacing my history with your history. It's that I think it's that simple. Yes, but for a reason. That's what you have to keep because remember replacement theory is we're being replaced. So you are you want to put your history in place so that your history justifies every me having to step back and you get to step forward. Right, right, right. right. But let me let Russ have the last word because you call for a reason. I, I feel like you were clear about what needs to happen or not happen. Yeah, well, yeah. And and, uh, and the only reason I equivocated on on whether or not reparations were owed was simply that that reparations to too many people is simply uh, a check in my hand as compared to substantive things that we can do to move forward as a as a race, as a country, as a as one people. And that was the only reason I equivocated, not because I didn't think that uh, that there needs to be some sort of justice to be taken, simply suggesting that. The, the big issue, I think the big hang up with most people would be uh, would be the government, you know, sending out taxpayer dollars to uh, to a, in the form of a check <laughs> as compared to uh, it, Jesse Jackson always used to talk about uh, a hand up, not a hand out. Yeah, but we just sent how many billions to Ukraine? I mean, listen, I'm just I'm not saying that that money's not well spent, but it looks like that money's going to end up every all those resources in the hands of Russia. That said, I I saw some people go like, why are we sending that much money? But when we have hungry children in America, we have hungry children, children unhoused in America. But we can send all of my taxpayer dollars to another country to stave off Russian incursion. I got it better. I don't mean to, I don't mean to just jump right. on you, but I hear yeah, handout and my yep. alarm bells go off like a, I hear that word handout. Mm-hmm. This guy just with all due respect, Russ, if you want to complain about handouts, the only handouts you should be complaining to are the only ones are never, ever to poor people. Forget about it. Give the yeah. poor people all yeah. the handouts. You're not. You're giving the handouts to giant corporations and industries who are destroying the planet in the form of... So Karen can talk about foreign aid, but I think foreign aid is helpful. What I don't think is subsidizing gas companies, subsidizing coal companies, Fact. giving the banks bailouts. And if you talk about handouts and you want to complain about handouts and you're not starting there, then you're missing the boat, my friend. Russ, so can, can I just jump in and say all, yep. to, all, all? I agree with all this, but the only thing that I, that I think we do need to keep in mind is uh, a check alone is not gonna. I don't care how big that check is, 
it is not going to address and resolve the problem. When you've denied the ability for people to figure out how to make their money work for them for so long, give them a check. Right. Right. Listen, and and, uh, anyway, this this conversation can go on. Russ, um, you have some work to do, sir. You have some work to do, but I'm glad that you are listening. Um, And I'm imagining you listen. Do you listen frequently or is this you just tuned in for the first time? Oh, no, no. I listen quite often. Okay, All right. Then let's let's keep listening Um, and, you know, get involved locally like Pete suggested, because that's where we need more people and come up with some strategy to try to Don't make sure that there's people. Yeah. Stop handouts, handouts to, yeah. Let's people. stop. Let's stop, stop making rich people richer. Uh, all right. We have to go to a break. <laughs> Jennifer, um, thank you for being here. I appreciate you. Um, definitely. You. Thank you. Good to meet Good you, to Pete. Hey, this is Karen Hunter. You can listen to the Karen Hunter show live every Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. East on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app.